you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you that mercy said no, they would not let us slip away, and that you have reached down and uh, grabbed us out of the mire and, and have given us your son as a penalty for our sin. Lord, as we approach your word now, we ask for your mercy. We ask for open hearts that you would help us to receive uh, clear teaching from your word today. Uh, may you be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Uh, if you're in the New Testament, you have Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians. There we go, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. Now, as you're turning there, uh, through the wonders of, of technology and the fact that we record our sermons here for our, our website, I get to wish my mom in North Carolina a uh, happy Mother's Day, and it be recorded for posterity. Uh, and so I actually asked her to send, send me a picture of her and I together, and I have that here uh, for us this morning. Um, that, that's my mom and I on the left there. Uh, you can see the receding hairline started early for me. Uh, but that, that's my mom, uh, Nancy. Uh, that's me about one year old. So that's my mom with her youngest, and then next to that is, is my wife with our youngest. And so I get to say happy Mother's Day to my mom, to my wife, Casey. My, my mother-in-law attends here at BCC. So Debbie, happy Mother's Day. And to all the moms here, we're, we're thankful for you. And, and we're very grateful, too, that on your way out, uh, not just moms, but all women, we'd love just to give you a little special uh, token of our appreciation as you leave. Again, that's not just for moms, but for all the, the ladies here uh, today. We're, we're grateful for you. Um, so there's another thing, too, I think that is good to have recorded here, too, on, on this, this sermon I said this the last time, uh, no, the first time I preached here at Bethany Community. Uh, that sermon mysteriously did not get recorded. And uh, you'll probably find the transcript in some cave 20 years from now. Um, but there, there's three things that I'm sure of as I come before you today. Okay? The, the first thing is that I am a mess. <laughs> and my Sunday school class hears me say this all the time. But I, I'm a mess. If you were to look down underneath the hood of my heart... You would find a man this morning that really wants to be liked, that really wants you to say, I did a great job this morning in an unhealthy way. (laughs) Uh, But as I say that, there's a second thing that I'm sure of, and that's this, that you're a mess too. Can we just agree on that together? That I'm a mess and you are a mess as well. But I'm thankful that the third thing I'm sure of comes, and that's this, that we have God's sure word to point us out of our mess. (laughs) Initially for salvation, that God points us towards our need for repentance and Jesus Christ's death on the cross to be the penalty for our sin so we can have new life and be assured of heaven. And then the scriptures continue to point us out of our mess, to point us towards a life of of progressive sanctification, to, to grow, become more and more like his son, a lifestyle of repentance and newness. So I'm glad that we can be sure of those three, three things together. Let's look to God's sure word now. Would you stand and join me? I'm going to be reading 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1 through 5. And Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says this, and, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, 
that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You may be seated. Tell me if you agree with this statement. I believe our society today is enthralled with great orators, of people that are just gifted in speaking. Maybe you've ever heard, that, ever heard this said, I, I could listen to that person read out of the phone book. And in the last hundred years, our world has had its share of, of gifted orators, hasn't it? You might think of Dr. Martin Luther King and his famous I Have a Dream speech in which he called for racial, racial equity and, and the end of discrimination. It's August 1963 on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Over 200,000 supporters there seen as the turning point of the American civil rights movement. Dr. King said this, And so, even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It's a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day, this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. You might think of uh, Ronald Reagan, who in 1987 uh, stood at the Brandenburg Gate of the Berlin Wall in Germany and spoke these words. We welcome change and openness. We believe that freedom and security go together, that the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate, Mr. Gorbachev. Open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We enjoy gifted oration, don't we? We, we can be mesmerized by it, sometimes a little too mesmerized by it. We can begin to believe that true wisdom comes only from good orators. Uh, Listen to these words. I can give vent to my inmost feelings only in the form of humble thanks to providence which called upon me, once an unknown soldier of the great war, to rise and be the leader of my people so dear to me. Providence showed me the way to free our people from the depths of its misery without bloodshed and to lead it upwards once again. Adolf Hitler, April 28th, 1939. You see, unlike Dr. King and President Reagan, Adolf Hitler is one of many examples of how a gifted orator with his planned out theatrics, careful manipulation, and and staged camera angles can fool many into doing what he says. See, we as believers begin to see the results of the world's theatrics and manipulation, and we think, you know, maybe we should try that with the gospel. I mean, we're, look at the results that can happen from speaking in man's wisdom with the stage theatrics. Maybe we should do this with the gospel. You see, we at times think that the world's understanding of how to influence others is right for us as we present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this, um, so when it comes to the gospel, 
we fooled ourselves into thinking that when it relates to evangelism, that we need to bring the intellect of the world into our presentation. Let me tell you today, this is not so. God tells us so in his book. Our message is the gospel alone by his power alone. Our message is the gospel alone by his power alone. Now, this doesn't mean that our message is an unintellectual one. Uh, it, It means that our message is not delivered according to the intellect of this world. Which points us to now to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let me give you a little bit of feedback on the city of Corinth and and the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, Many of you know the city of Corinth was a a seafaring city. It was on a a port and was known to be a very immoral city. Uh, Let's just say that sailors came in to sow their wild oats. Now, uh, to be called Corinthianized was synonymous with becoming immoral. In fact, prostitutes in Corinth were just simply called Corinthian women. And so as, as, uh, as we approach the city, we, we see that in, in, in Acts chapter 18, Paul visits this city for the first time. Now this is in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey. He, Paul has three main missionary journeys. And in Acts fifteen thirty six through eighteen twenty two. This is Paul's second missionary journey. 18 chronicles his time, his initial time in Corinth. And if you look at Acts 18, we won't turn there now, but you'll see that Paul meets uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, Silas and Timothy come and visit uh, Paul there. Many Corinthians believed in Jesus Christ and were baptized. You could say that the Corinth community church was planted uh, there. Uh, God gave Paul a vision to stay longer in uh, Acts 18 in, in Corinth. Uh, he stayed uh, about 18 months there, about A.D. Uh, 51 to, to 52 A.D. Um, this is the longest he'd ever stayed in any place where he planted a church thus far. Well, in Acts 20, uh, 18, 22, 23 is when his third missionary journey begins. And it's during this third missionary journey, Paul stays in Ephesus, and he writes the book of 1 Corinthians now, he had already written another letter uh, to, to the Corinthian church, and it's, it's mentioned in the book of 1 Corinthians. But 1 Corinthians is the, the first canonized letter that we have from Paul to this dear church that he, that he planted. Now, the, the book of 1 Corinthians, I want to give you a little taste of this book. It's a wonderful, wonderful book because it's, it's basically an, an index of how, from a biblical perspective, we should respond to certain issues that come up in the church so I have a slide here that, that shows uh, how the book is laid out. And again, I hope this kind of whets your appetite for this book, and you'll consider uh, studying this book. Um, the first portion of 1 Corinthians is uh, Paul uh, responding to some things that he had heard that were happening in Corinth, in the church there. And uh, some of the things you see here, that he'd heard that there were factions there, and, and uh, he'd heard that there was immorality happening. They needed some help with how to deal with lawsuits among, among believers there. And it even says in chapter 1 that he had heard from Chloe's people about some of these issues. Well, I love, I think Paul writes this letter much like I would write a letter if I had planted a church and was writing back to this church. Because first, he addresses the things he had heard. I've got some things I need to get off my chest with you, church, and I need to address those things. Well, then we see a transition in chapter 7. 
chapter 7, verse 1, Paul says, now to address the things of which you wrote about. See, the the Corinthian church was asking for help on some specific things, but Paul said, okay, first let me address the things I need to get off my chest, and then I'll address the things in which you wrote me about. And so Paul does address those things. The church was looking for help with marriage principles, uh, struggling with what to do with food, sacrifice to idols, uh, public worship, and the resurrection. And then Paul gives some some final directions uh, there to, to the church. Now, our, our passage today falls into this section on factions. Now, you might wonder, okay, how, how could there be factions already in this church? This is just, you know, three or so years later after Paul had just left. He had spent 18 months there, a long time there, helping to, to root these people in, in gospel truth. How could there be factions already? How could they have developed so quickly Well, let's find out. Let's find out here. Let's approach our text here, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Remember that our our message big idea for today is that God tells us our message is the gospel alone by his power alone. And this leads us to our our first main point uh, for this morning. As, As we consider the gospel, let's not be fooled by man's wisdom. As we consider the gospel, don't be fooled by man's wisdom. Look, look back at verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Go to verse 4. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Now, why would Paul say this? Why does he repeat these words, talking about lofty speech, uh, plausible words of, of wisdom? Well, the Greek culture then, the Hellenistic culture then, majored in wonderful orators. (laughs) Orators who loved to impress the crowds by their lofty speech, by their plausible wisdom. They were recognized and lifted up as great in this society. They were the true wise. They were the ones worthy of respect. Does this sound familiar? Can you relate that to today? Now, Paul clearly states... I don't want to be one of those guys. I don't want to be associated with those people who use these lofty words and these plausible words of wisdom. He didn't want the following that came along with being one of those people. And I I think there's three reasons why. Three reasons why Paul said, I don't want to be associated uh, with these people. The first, I think Paul saw how the church would desire to follow one certain man. Okay, look, look back at 1 Corinthians 1 here. You might not, might not even have to turn a page. But in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, starting in verse 10, we see this, this struggle the church was having with following a certain man. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that you have been, there's been quarreling among you, my brothers. Which I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? See, Paul saw how easily the church had been swayed by the culture around them. To follow, follow, pick a person, follow them, a particular person. Second reason 
second reason I think Paul did not want to be associated with these Greek orators is that Paul saw how much the church struggled with man's wisdom instead of looking to God's wisdom. Look back at 1 Corinthians 1, starting in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preached to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks, Greeks seek wisdom. See, Paul spent a considerable time in this book taking the church's belief that man's wisdom was important and dashing it upon the rocks, trying to destroy that belief of the, the need for man's wisdom, showing them the foolishness that lied there. There's a third reason, a third reason why Paul didn't want the typical following of a Greek orator. I believe that, that Paul was worried about false conversions, people that would say, Yes, in light of what this great orator said, I want to follow Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. I, I recently uh, saw an example of a, of a parade of people who's, who's, they said my lives were changed by Christ, moving from uh, drug addiction to, to being clean and all these different things. And afterwards, the pastor came up and said, so who wants Jesus? And didn't mention sin didn't mention what it means to have a relationship with God. And so, like Paul, we need to be careful that the manipulation of the world does not bring about false, false conversion. If you look back at our passage in chapter 2, verse 4, it says it was not looking for plausible words of wisdom. I think the NAS translates that, persuasive words of the world's wisdom. Uh, don't look for manipulation uh, to bring about conversions or false conversions. Let me illustrate to you, I mean, two types of people that have struggled with uh, being fooled by man's wisdom when it comes to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? The, the first person is this. The first person is the one who tries to confidently preach in man's wisdom and to focus on the world's methods. They go ahead and confidently preach in the man's wisdom. Okay. Some of you might have heard the name uh, Rob Bell before. He's a, a church leader in, in Michigan. And his church has developed a series of videos called the, the NUMA videos. N-O-O-M-A. And uh, th- these videos, I'll tell you, from an artistic perspective, are just excellently done. These kind of 13-minute short films. And, and uh, boy, the lighting, the, the music, the, the directing of these videos, they're just excellent, excellently done. And so I'm not here to critique the use of, of film or, or media within the church. Um, a, lo- a lot of these videos start with uh, Rob Bell sitting on a, a park bench or in a coffee shop addressing the camera, addressing us as the viewer. And there's cutaways to the situation he's addressing. So there's one particular video called Bullhorn. And it starts in the same way that, that Rob Bell sitting in a, in a, in a park bench uh, addressing us as the viewer. And it, it, there's cutaways to a man that Rob Bell describes as, as preparing to come uh, to a street corner to, uh, to yell through a bullhorn, uh, repent, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand, uh, you're going to go to hell if you, you don't receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
And Rob Bell says this to us, the viewer. He's using words like, like sin, burn, and hell. Repent. And then I hear, hear the word Jesus. If I don't repent, I'm going to pay for it for eternity. And no one is stopping to hear more. Bullhorn guy, I don't think this is working. <laughs> I don't think it is what Jesus had in mind. You don't understand what all the condemning, I mean, we don't understand what all the condemning and the converting has to do with Jesus' message. Didn't Jesus say that he came to save and not to condemn? He never stops insisting that God really, really loves us exactly as we are. Isn't that what draws you to him? That's what draws me. Now, let me be very clear here. We are not going to hand out megaphones at the door and invite you to take one and stand in the corner of your neighborhood and scream at your neighbors as they drive by. Uh, I agree with Rob Bell. I don't think that's a great methodology necessarily for asking people to consider Christ. But as I look at this video and hear Rob Bell's words, it does not seem that he is only condemning that methodology. Did you hear some of the words that I read there? Using words like sin, using words like hell, repent. You see, I think Rob Bell has been influenced by the world. Don't rock the boat. Don't say anything controversial here. All you need is love, as the Beatles would say. In essence, saying to truly love someone means to not point out their sin. Church, can I ask you, if you see me caught in sin, love me enough to tell me. Would you love me enough to tell me, call me out of my sin, and call me to repentance? Remind me of my need for a Savior. Use these words that Rob Bell says don't use. So I think that is a, a clear illustration. A clear illustration of a person who has said, I'm going to confidently preach in man's wisdom. But there's a second kind of person. There's a second kind of person I think has been fooled by man's wisdom, and that's the person who has the faulty view that I, I need man's wisdom in the ways of this world in order to preach about Christ. And I don't have those, so I'm not going to do it. I'm just not going to preach about Christ because I don't feel equipped to do that. Let me give an illustration from my own life about this. Now, this isn't exactly in an evangelistic situation. It has to do with a, a counseling situation. I was on the phone with someone and talking through a very difficult counseling issue. And, and uh, I didn't know exactly what to say. I, boy, I really wanted the right words to say. I really want to be perceived as a great, a great counselor, someone that could really help with this need. But I didn't know what to say. And so I asked the person, I said, hey, I'll keep this confidential as far as names, but could I go ask uh, someone for some help on this? And they said, sure, that'd be fine. They trusted me, and so we hung up. I walk across the hall to, to Kent Cloder's office, and I explain the situation again, being very careful to keep confidentiality. And I said, Kent, this is, this is a, tough, a tough situation here, and I don't feel equipped to do it. I don't know what right words to say. I've never dealt with a situation like this. Even if you'd be willing to take this from me, I would be happy for you to take this from me. And Kent, uh, the first thing he did is he, he took off his glasses. And if you know Kent, if he takes off his glasses, something good's coming. He took off his glasses and he gave a little bit of a, of a, a sigh. And he said, he said, Ben, you have everything you need to counsel in this situation. 
and he held up his Bible. You see, I was looking for uh, the right words from man's wisdom. I wanted to be eloquent. I wanted to be seen as very wise, but I felt ill-equipped. Kent knew to direct me, <laughs> direct me to God's word. The, the many times I've said to people, the Bible has answers for all of life's questions, but I needed Kent that day to help remind me that it's not about my wisdom, but about God's. There's evidence in polling, too, that, that uh, we are sharing Christ with others less and less. And I wonder, could one of the reasons be because we think we need this extra set of man's wisdom in order to tell people about Christ? There's an article in a April USA Today of this year. It's entitled this, Would You Take a Pal to Easter Worship if the Jonas Brothers Sang? Now, if you don't know who the Jonas Brothers are, you, like me, are old. Okay. But this uh, title was in reference to a church that actually had an Easter service where the Jonas Brothers sang. And they packed out the place that day. (laughs) Getting back to the article, I could say more about that. Uh, There's an unsettling theme, the article says, in recent religious news. It's not that U.S. Christians no longer celebrate Easter, but that the evangelical spirit, defined as the drive to share this good news, seems to be waning Christians, that would appear, are slacking on the job, and their friends' and family's souls are on the line, church leaders say. Two key problems. First, many Christians are hazy on Jesus' resurrection. Go to 1 Corinthians. It'll help you with that. Second, even those who know this is the core message of Easter largely don't share it with others. They quote David Kinneman, president of Barna, who says, Those who celebrate Easter because of the resurrection of Christ are not particularly likely to invite non-church friends to worship, suggesting that their personal beliefs about Jesus have not yet translated into a sense of urgency for having spiritual conversations with their acquaintances. There is not a sense of urgency. Well, why not? (laughs) Why not? I think the world has, has crept in. Let me give a few thoughts of application on this first point. The first is this. I I think we've lost our focus on the vertical. Uh, John Piper greatly titles a a devotional book he's put together. It's called this. A Godward Life, Saving the Supremacy of God in All of Life. We've lost our sense of our vertical connection to the Lord. We need to savor the supremacy of God in all of life. It starts by spending time in God's Word. In our Sunday school class, we, uh, last week we invited uh, people to a challenge we're calling the, the 430 challenge. And the idea is that more days than not in a certain week to spend time in God's word, even if it means getting up at 430 in the morning. And this morning we heard a testimony of how the 430 challenge is, is, is challenging them to, to spend time in God's word. I know it's challenged me to be more intentional. I'm not saying you have to get up at 430 in the morning. But if that's what it takes to see the supremacy of God in all of life, let's do it. Let's do it. Because here's the bottom line. If you help your life, if you help your life with the scriptures in the background, would you blend in? If you hold up your life and the scriptures are shading behind you, would you blend in with the scriptures? So our message, big idea for today is that God tells us our message Our message is the gospel alone and his power alone. And first, as we consider the gospel, 
We must not be fooled by man's wisdom. Well, second, second, as we consider the gospel, we need to tell of Jesus Christ and tell of him crucified. To tell of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look back to verse 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Verse 5, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, is Paul saying, I'm kind of anti-intellectual here? Uh, I would say by no means. Paul's not saying that. See, Paul had to teach the historical details of the resurrection, the historical details of the crucifixion. He had to talk through the theological implications that had for eternity, for forgiveness, for heaven, for the resurrection of the body. Paul did not want to adapt man's practice, or in a sense, the -the over-the-top display in his presentation of the gospel. One commentator says that Paul had simply brought the message of salvation in simple terms to everyone in his audience so they could understand. That was his passion. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 17, it says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 23 of chapter 1, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. See, Paul was so passionate that others would receive the gospel clearly that in verse 3, in chapter 2, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. This is not, Paul's not saying I was, I was scared to preach the gospel because we know Ephesians six nineteen, Paul says, I boldly proclaim the gospel. I boldly proclaim the gospel and the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. To say that Paul was fearful doesn't seem to fit the context of Paul's life. John MacArthur says this about verse 3. I wrote it down. I couldn't say it better. Paul came to Corinth knowing that Corinth was an epitome of paganism and moral degeneracy. He was fearful and trembling only in the sense of being deeply anxious the gospel would somehow find root in the most unpromising of places. He was fearful only of the gospel being rejected and of the terrible consequences of that rejection in the Corinthians' lives. See, Paul was passionate for the gospel, and he wanted to be clearly presented to the Corinthians. He was not passionate about these extraordinary methods. My wife and I used to be in campus ministry for about 11 years or so, and we would, uh, each summer would spend five or, or six weeks with a group of college students somewhere on a mission project. One particular summer, we were in, we were in Wildwood, New Jersey, and one of the students participating on the project, her name was Tiffany. She was a student from the University of Michigan. She had come to Christ about five months prior to going on this mission project. A large portion of our project was spent going out to the boardwalk there in Wildwood, New Jersey, and sharing Christ with vacationers there on the boardwalk. Well, sometimes we did that at night, and so for safety reasons, they would pair up men and women together. And so there was one night I was paired up with, with Tiffany. And so she was a younger believer, and so I took the initiative and, and talked with some people, and Tiffany was there with me, and, and uh, we work, worked through a, a survey and, and asked some questions about spiritual things. I got to share the gospel using this little booklet called uh, the Four Spiritual Law Booklet, a gospel presentation booklet. And we, I'd actually used up all those books in the course of our time out sharing our faith. And uh, 
I said, well, Tiffany, we can head back now. And we're kind of out of those four spiritual law books. She said, Ben, but, you know, I've been on this project for two weeks now, and I haven't yet to talk about my faith with someone on this boardwalk. I want to do it tonight. I want to do it tonight. I said, well, you know, we're kind of out of, of, the, of the booklets, but I think you can do it. I think you can do it. You've seen it done. And so there I stood, and I, I, I kind of followed Tiffany's lead, and we, we approached this group of, of uh, boys, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old. And there Tiffany very eloquently began to explain the gospel. She didn't need a four spiritual law booklet. She didn't need all these uh, illustrations or, or, or all these different uh, things that we can kind of conjure up. That, Boy, I really need all these illustrations. I need all this, this wisdom in order to share the gospel clearly. And I watched just in amazement. Tiffany clearly shared the gospel. And so the question comes up, right? Well, what is the gospel? Okay, well, kids, kids, are you with me? Have you been to Camp Good News? Have you been to a Good News Club? You've been to Vacation Bible Camp? What? What, the wordless book, right, kids? What, what, what does the gold color stand for? Do you remember that? Remember that stands for heaven? Okay. And then there's black. What's that stand for? So I heard the S, sin, right? Stands for sin. And then the red, Christ, Jesus Christ, shedding his blood for our sin, right? And then the white, washing our sins white as snow. And then the green, what's the green? To grow, to grow in Christ, right? The simplicity of the gospel represented in five colors. Charles Spurgeon says this as it relates to sharing the gospel. The power that is in the gospel does not lie in the eloquence of the preacher. Otherwise, men would be the converters of souls. Nor does it lie in the preacher's learning. Otherwise, it would consist of the wisdom of men. We might preach until our tongues rotted, till we would exhaust our lungs and die, but never a soul would be converted unless the Holy Spirit be with the Word of God to give the power to convert the soul. So my question for us today, are you passionate about the gospel to all peoples? We need to be. We need to be. Why? Well, first and foremost, and we talk about this time and again at Bethany Community Church, we need to be a passion about reaching the lost because it brings glory to God. Because it brings glory to God. You know, our church's purpose statement is this, to glorify God as we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and prepare his people to worship him forever. We exist to glorify God as we proclaim Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, obviously, we need to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord to one another to remind each other of the gospel. But as a second facet to that, we need to be proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord to the lost, to the unsaved. We need to be passionate about that. Another reason we need to be passionate for that, this is an article two weeks ago in USA Today. It addresses uh, a certain section of society called the millennial people. These are people from 18 to 29 years old. A survey done with 1,200 people in that age range. The results are startling. 65% rarely or never attend worship services. 67% don't read the Bible or any sacred text. Many are unsure Jesus is the only path to heaven. Half say yes, half say no. Now get this. Of this millennial group, 19 to uh, 18 to 29 years old, of those in this group that believe they will go to heaven because they accept Jesus Christ as Savior, half don't attend service 
regularly. 36% of people that proclaim Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, 36% rarely or never read their Bible. And these are people who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Recently at a, at a prayer time I was at, um, Gary Lawson was sharing a devotional, and he, he quoted from uh, Matthew 4.19 where Jesus says, uh, Follow me, and what? I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And Gary said this, If you're not a fisher of men, who are you following? Because there's an implication there, right? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be becoming a fisher of men. Now, I brought my fishing pole up here today. Now, imagine me, okay, sitting here in five points, standing here before you, and I say, I'm going to catch some fish today. And so I cast, right? I'm going to catch. I'd be crazy, right? Uh, Ben, you're in a theater. (laughs) There's no fish anywhere near you right now. Why would you be casting in here? Well, is this too different from us as believers today? Yeah, God, I'm a fisher of men. Yeah, there's not going to really be around fish, though. I'm just not going to stay over here, but I'm a fisher of men. I'm following you. Okay, well, what if we go out to Bowen Lake there on, on 24 and, and Main Street? And I say, okay, now, now, I'm gonna, I got my rod, I got my reel, I, I'm going to be a fisher of men. But instead of casting out in the lake, I cast out to the grass. Not very effective, right? Is that too different from us as believers? Yeah, God, I'm, I'm around the fish. They're, they're in my neighborhood, my family. I work, work with them. Um, but I'm, I'm going to kind of spend my time over here. I see them. I can see them in there. I can see them. But I'm going to spend my time casting my reel this way. <laughs> Jesus calls us. Jesus calls us to cast right into the lake. And if I did that, if I cast my rod and reel out there in the lake, I would be catching fish. The challenge before us today, church, is are you casting your rod? Are you casting in a way that you are becoming a fisher of men? Are you following Christ and becoming a fisher of men? Let me give you a few concrete ways for you to apply this second point here. Concrete ways, uh, things that we're doing even within Bethany Community Church. On your way out here uh, at the Welcome Center, uh, Josh Durham's going to be standing. He's going to have these little flyers. Here at Bethany Community, we are trusting the Lord for the for the ability to start an evangelism training program called Evangelism Explosion. This is a great opportunity for us as a church to get training, theological training on what the gospel is and also how to communicate it clearly. So Josh is going to be at the Welcome Center. He'll have these flyers. He'll have a sign-up sheet there too. Signing up doesn't commit you anything. You're just saying, I'd like to hear more about how I could be trained and how I can get development and how I can share the gospel clearly clearly with others. Gra- grab a flyer from him too. Another concrete way, you might have heard of something called a, a Bible overview. A Bible overview is a, a gathering in, in someone's home where they invite their neighbors to come and someone can teach or you can teach a, just an overview of the Bible. So if you have good relationships in your neighborhood and, and you know that boy, people would come and, and I've you know, served dessert, we have a great time of connecting with our neighbors who, who maybe aren't Christians We'll send someone. Gary Lawson is, is a, has done a great job with Bible overviews. 
Gary will come and teach for you. Just, just gather the people. A great opportunity to share the gospel. A concrete way of applying this text. A third way to invite you to apply this text is to get involved in an unsaved person's life. Now, there's a story of neighbor A, who's a Christian, uh, visiting neighbor B's home, who's new in the neighborhood, and neighbor A knew he wasn't a Christian. So neighbor A came over, and he said to neighbor B, hey, uh, can I borrow your ladder? I've got a project going on. Can I, can I borrow that from you? Neighbor B said, sure, be fine. So he borrowed the ladder, brought it back a few days later. That kind of thing happened. Well, a few months down the road, you know, this relationship had developed, and, and neighbor B had been invited to church and in that neighbor A's home. And, and, and when neighbor B was in neighbor A's home, guess what he found hanging on the wall in the garage? A ladder. A very good ladder, in fact. You see, neighbor A didn't need to borrow a ladder. But he wanted to involve himself in his neighbor's life. So he went over and simply said, do you have a ladder I could borrow? We need to get involved in other people's lives who don't know Jesus Christ. Maybe it's borrowing a ladder. Maybe it's inviting someone over for dinner. Maybe it's going to that person's child's soccer game. Asking for help on, or advice on a home repair. Bringing in their garbage cans. Treating them to coffee. Do something to invite your, those people into your life and to be involved in other people's lives who don't know Christ in a deeper way. Begin to pray for them. And, and, and write this down. Write down this one question. If you're a note taker, you know, blessed are those who take notes, right? If you're a note taker, or, or try, try to remember this question. Friend, you know I go to church. What do you think about spiritual issues? Insert your friend's name there. Bob, you know I, I attend church on Sunday mornings. You've probably seen my car leave the driveway. What do you think about spiritual things? And invite God into those conversations as you invest in their lives. God tells us our message is the gospel alone by his power alone. You know, feelings don't determine reality. They should not determine your actions. And when it comes to thinking about talking to our unsaved family members or acquaintances or neighbors about Christ, this this feelings well up within us of, oh, I really don't want to do that. Feelings do not determine your reality. They should not determine your actions. Like Kent, I hold up my Bible and I say, we have the answers to people's deepest need. And their deepest need is spiritual. They have a sin cancer in their lives. And we have the answer to that sin. Let the challenge to not be fooled by man's wisdom and to preach Christ crucified bring glory to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word clearly instructs us that as, as we receive salvation, uh, you give us clear direction for our lives. Lord, may we be fishers of men. Amen.